The reason Julius Caesar by Shakespeare is one of the most famous plays on the planet is that it's the most extraordinary political thriller. It's helped to shape many countries' sense of themselves, uh, and among those countries, perhaps the USA most of all. Uh, Cassius, in the play itself, speculates about how many times Caesar's assassination will be reenacted uh, in states unborn and accents yet unknown, and he was dead right. This is a play which has resonated around the world. Uh, it's been particularly important at moments of great political crisis. Julius Caesar has an enormous amount to say about the nature of political institutions and the things they do to the people who have to maintain or even change them, overthrow them even. It's a traumatic play, which is also an extremely ennobling play. It's a play about rhetoric, a play that shows what language can make people do. Hello, I'm Professor Michael Dobson, the director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is part of the University of Birmingham in England. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Dobson about Julius Caesar, one of Shakespeare's most famous plays about one of history's most famous events. In the year 44 BCE, in the ancient Roman Republic, the popular and increasingly powerful general Julius Caesar was assassinated by a group of Roman senators, an event leading to the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. Shakespeare turns this pivotal moment in history into gripping political drama. Its eloquent speeches have made it a popular play to assign in schools, but its status as a classroom text shouldn't make us see the play as somehow safe. In fact, it's an absolutely traumatic play about trauma, about very extreme behaviour, about where that eloquence might get you if you're not careful. I think it's a far more powerful and dangerous and unresolved play than this view of it as a repository of safe school wisdom uh, has has ever let on. In Shakespeare's England, young students read the works of Julius Caesar himself. Renaissance humanism centred on the language and history of classical Greece and Rome, and so Caesar's writings and his story loomed large in Shakespeare's culture. Shakespeare will have discussed him at school, read Caesar's own writings. Julius Caesar is an absolute household name, for the whole of this culture, whether you've been to grammar school or not. And questions about Caesar's assassination, was it good? Was it justified? Were central debating points for Renaissance political theorists thinking about monarchy and tyranny. Julius Caesar is a great debating point for the whole of the Renaissance. Caesar, for some, is the archetypical tyrant. He's somebody who wins a civil war and then centralises power and destroys the constitution. For others, he's the personification of the Republic. He's the person who would have kept Rome civilised if he hadn't been murdered. Uh, so as the ultimate damnable act, or also the ultimate act of doomed liberal resistance uh, to political tyranny, the assassination of Caesar is a kind of key reference point. At the beginning of Shakespeare's play, opinions about the great general are already divided. 
The common people are celebrating Caesar's triumphant return to Rome after his defeat of Pompeii. Their celebration is violently interrupted by two tribunes, political representatives of the people, who see Caesar's growing power as a threat to the balanced governance of the Roman Republic. Classical Rome, before it becomes an empire, is extremely proud of the fact that it's got a constitution. You have a Senate, which is deliberative, uh, and it's legislative. The main political power is supposed to be invested in two consuls at a time so that you don't get a single dominant figure like a king. At the beginning of the play, one consul had just killed the other. Uh, Caesar has just defeated Pompey in a civil war. He crosses the Rubicon, um, he marches the army and uses it uh, to defeat Pompey and make himself the sole consul in Rome. Caesar is clearly in power and there are other people of his social rank who are worried that he's going to stay in power forever or he's going to promote himself to being king and not pass on power um, in, uh, as he is supposed to do. So we're in this precarious situation where supposedly he's a servant of the Republican constitution, but is that really how it's going to stop? Caesar and a crowd of Roman nobles enter. A soothsayer calls to Caesar, beware the Ides of March. The Ides is the Roman term for mid-month or the 15th of March. Caesar dismisses the man as a dreamer and exits. Two of the nobles remain behind, Cassius and Brutus, a close friend of Caesar's. Realising that Cassius has something on his mind, Brutus tells him to speak freely. If it be aught toward the general good, Brutus says, he will embrace it, for I love the name of honour more than I fear death. Cassius's worry is that Caesar's unchecked rise to power is depriving all other Romans of honour. Cassius knows that Caesar has decidedly human weaknesses, and yet, he says, this man is now become a god who bestrides the narrow world like a colossus, forcing other Romans into dishonourable graves. Cassius finds this dishonour unbearable, but he believes that they can do something about it. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings, he declares. Cassius manages to feed the idea repeatedly to Brutus. Caesar thinks he's better than us. And that seems to be um, absolutely key that uh, in a republic we're all supposed to be equals, but here is Caesar going on as though uh, he's actually divine, uh, that he's actually you know, has, has superior rank over us. Uh, and that's clearly very personally intolerable to Cassius in this wonderfully visible, um, kind of undisguised way. Uh, and he's able to seed that in Brutus as well. Brutus hints that he sympathises with Cassius's frustration. Then they learn that, in front of a crowd, Caesar's close friend Mark Antony offered Caesar a crown. Caesar refused it, but with apparent reluctance. 
Later, Cassius hears that the Senate actually plans to make Caesar king the next day. He rallies fellow conspirators to meet at Brutus's house. Such is Brutus's virtue, they believe, that the Roman people will approve anything they do if it is Brutus that leads them. That night, a storm shakes Rome and unnatural portents appear in the streets. Brutus is sleepless and troubled. He ponders Caesar's growing power and reveals that he is even prepared to kill Caesar to curb his ambition. But despite his conviction that killing Caesar would serve the general good, he is deeply distressed. When you are planning a dreadful thing, he says, the time before it is done feels like a phantasma or a hideous dream. Cassius and the other conspirators arrive. Brutus affirms that he is willing to lead their enterprise, but some things he is not willing to do. Cassius says they should kill Mark Antony too, to keep him from seeking retribution for Caesar's death. But Brutus says their course will seem too bloody if they kill Antony. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers, he urges. Brutus also reckons, perhaps naively, that the most Antony can do for Caesar is kill himself in grief. There's no discussion of future plans, who's to be leader, what's to happen in the constitution, who's to govern and how. Um, Just killing Caesar, this one person who's trying to be king, will solve everything. Um, And therefore, um, Antony's not going to be a problem. When the conspirators depart, Brutus's wife, Portia, enters. She pleads to know why Brutus seems so distracted and begs to be taken into his confidence. She has wounded herself to prove she has the constancy and self-control to keep his secrets. Brutus promises to tell her everything. In the next scene, Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, also pleads with her husband. She has had a terrible dream and fears for Caesar's life. She begs him not to go to the capital. Caesar is scornful of her fear, telling her, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. But eventually he gives in and says he will not go. The conspirator Decius arrives and cautions Caesar that the Senate may think that he is a coward and perhaps not offer him the crown. Caesar now declares that he will go to the capital. It is March 15th, the Ides of March. At the capital, the conspirators gather around Caesar under the pretense of asking him to pardon a political offender. Caesar says their pleas will never change his mind, proclaiming, I am as constant as the northern star. Then the conspirators close in and stab him to death. When, last of all, Brutus stabs him too, Caesar asks, Et tu, Brute? Meaning, and you, Brutus? And then he speaks his last words. Then fall, Caesar. The conspirators now focus on how to represent Caesar's death to the public. Brutus orders, 
Let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Then walk we forth even to the marketplace and let's all cry, peace, freedom and liberty. They want to persuade the people that they killed Caesar to safeguard the freedom of Rome. But first they need to persuade Antony. He arrives at the capital and is horrified by the sight of Caesar's body. Brutus insists that they killed Caesar out of pity to the general wrong of Rome. Antony offers his friendship, asking only to be allowed to speak at Caesar's funeral. Cassius wants to refuse. Antony might stir up the people against them. Brutus, however, is confident that the people will take their side and agrees to let Antony speak. But when the others exit, Antony cries, Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood! He wants vengeance for Caesar's death. The next scene is one of the most famous in Shakespeare's work. It is Caesar's funeral featuring the rival speeches of Brutus and Antony. Shakespeare took the stories of Brutus, Caesar and Antony from a Roman writer named Plutarch, but the rhetoric in this scene is his own addition. And the one thing Plutarch can't do the way Shakespeare can is write speeches. Uh, Plutarch doesn't tell us what was said at Caesar's funeral. All of those incredible set-piece displays of watching those people behave in public, watching the way in which they get attention and they win over their hearers or don't, uh, that's all Shakespeare. In the public square, the people are fearful and angry over Caesar's death. Brutus comes before them to explain why he killed Caesar. It was, Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more, he says. Caesar's ambition was a threat to the freedom and honour of all Romans, and the assassination was a patriotic act for the good of Rome. His words win the crowd over, but then he departs and Antony arrives, calling... Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. At first, Antony praises the conspirators as honourable men. But by the end of the speech, he's convinced the crowd that the conspirators are villains and murderers who killed the people's loving leader. The crowd erupts in a violent frenzy that drives Brutus and his followers out of Rome. The mob comes across a poet who has the same name as one of the conspirators, Cinna. He protests that he is not a conspirator, but the crowd doesn't care. They just cry, tear him! The scene crystallises the chaos that Antony and Brutus have unleashed on Rome. We build up to this virtuoso sequence, extraordinarily powerful drama. You think the killing of Caesar was, was exciting, wait till you see his funeral. You know, this amazing sequence of, of uh, as the violence that we see focused in that one crowd stabbing Caesar then bursts out across the whole city and we get another scene of a whole crowd stabbing Sinner the poet. And you think, you know, that this, this meaningful killing is now being repeated meaninglessly all over the place. You know, there's all this violence that, that Antony has willfully set loose and the suspense is going to be, what kind of order can come out of this? Ousted from Rome, Brutus and Cassius rally an army. 
So does Antony, who joins forces with Octavius, Caesar's adopted heir. We see Antony and Octavius meet in a war council. Then we see Brutus and Cassius meet in a scene that is markedly tense. Each man feels wronged by the other. Brutus accuses Cassius of taking bribes and contaminating the justice of their cause. The great highlight in the stage tradition of this play, particularly before the 20th century, is the scene between Brutus and Cassius before Philippi. Uh, the, this sort of marital row they have in the tent where you know, they accuse each other of betraying the ideals for which they've killed Caesar. And it looks as though, as well as destroying and losing everything else, they've destroyed their friendship as well. Brutus and Cassius go from fury to anguish to eventual reconciliation, and Brutus confesses that he is sick of many griefs. His wife Portia has killed herself. They are interrupted by officers who tell them that Octavius and Antony are marching towards Philippi. Brutus says they will march out to meet them, declaring, There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. That night, Brutus is visited by the ghost of Caesar, who tells him, Thou shalt see me at Philippi. And at that fateful battlefield... Brutus does meet a Caesar, Octavius, whom Antony now addresses with the name Caesar. Octavius is brilliant at learning the political lessons of Julius Caesar, which is always represent yourself as though your political destiny is inevitable. Um, if you call yourself Caesar often enough, people will A, think you're the next Caesar, and B, think that means something uh, that you can't really negotiate with. The next day, Brutus and Cassius face Octavius and Antony at Philippi. In the confusion of battle, Cassius mistakenly thinks his troops have lost and feels compelled by honour to kill himself. For Romans, suicide demonstrated courage and nobility, and it was an honourable alternative to the shame of being captured in battle. Brutus himself claimed that he bore too great a mind to be Octavius's prisoner, he would rather kill himself than be captured. For a Roman, you should be in total control of your own death. You can shape your destiny. Uh, and that's what a Roman is supposed to do. If the only alternative is dishonour, then it is the, mo the most honourable thing to do is to uh, kill yourself. In the next battle, Brutus is defeated. Now he, too, prepares to kill himself. With his last words, he addresses Caesar's spirit. Caesar, now be still. I killed not thee with half so good a will. The victorious Antony and Octavius come upon Brutus's body. Antony declares, This was the noblest Roman of them all. Octavius orders that Brutus's body be laid out, most like a soldier, ordered honourably. Their words are respectful and admiring now that their rival is dead. There's practically nothing else in Rome except men uh, having these intense rivalries and emulations together. 
And one of the greatest weapons you have is then to present yourself as supremely magnanimous once you've won. You know, it's, it's you know, once somebody's dead, then that's the cue to say really marvellous things about them because that makes you look so good. You say, ah, yes, his was the noblest Roman of them all. Um, I hereby, by expressing admiration for his greater qualities, uh, show that I must have them even better than he did. Octavius delivers the play's last line. Let's away impart the glories of this happy day. It sounds decisive, but it echoes oddly one of Brutus's lines in a way that calls the whole meaning of the battle into question. Just before his suicide, Brutus declared, I shall have glory by this losing day, more than Octavius and Mark Antony by this vile conquest shall attain. Was this a happy day or a losing day? Who has the glory? How do we judge what Brutus has done? It's astonishing that Shakespeare is able to make us worry and feel so involved and anxious about whether Caesar is going to get murdered or not, when we know it's the most famous thing that ever happened. Caesar gets murdered. Um, And at the same time, he's able to use that perspective so that we're always hearing what characters are saying in the light of what we do already know. know, uh, We know that Brutus is doomed. He, uh, the question is what that means. Is what dies with Brutus something we should be sad about? Shakespeare turns the inevitability of finished history into something that remains unsettled right through to the present. The play is heavy with the dramatic irony of its impending events. But our certainty about what is to come is matched only by our uncertainty about how to judge it. We'll investigate how Shakespeare animates history in such an extraordinary way in the next episode.